Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. There's an old proverb from Lancashire that goes, from clogs to clogs in three generations. The Japanese say something similar. The third generation ruins the house. And my favourite, the Australians say, from goon to grange to goon. And my guest this week works with his clients to mitigate this. Uh, his name is Nick Corley. He's the head of private client services at Accorian. Now, Accorian is a multidisciplined global financial services company. They operate across fund services, uh, corporate administration, capital markets, private clients, etc. And in this episode, we talk about intergenerational wealth transfer. Um, we touch on the challenges and some of the emotional journeys that a lot of his clients have to go through and the differing philosophies as you go down the generations. Um, Nick was an excellent guest and he's super knowledgeable in this space. And do check out the Accorian website at accorian.com um, for more information on his offering. Uh, but without further ado, this is the Wine Best Podcast. Nick Cawley, welcome to the podcast. Nick, what are the key challenges and risks faced when wealth is transferred down from generation to generation. Hi, Douglas. Um, thank you, and, and thank you very much for inviting me to to speak on your podcast. Uh, key challenges and risks. There are quite a number. Um, most of them are actually things we, when one reflects are probably in the nature of common sense, but you need someone to help and guide you through it. The one challenge or risk which I probably won't talk about is tax, funnily enough. Because um, tax very rarely is the primary driver, uh, either the primary challenge can be a risk, but not necessarily the primary risk when looking at passing wealth down from generation to generation. Uh, it's important, but you know, we find it's better to get the objectives right, get the communication right and get the documentation right first and then deal with whatever individual tax matters arise thereafter. So in terms of challenges, um, there isn't a one one size fits all. So it's really about finding the solution and the mechanism that is right for the family concerned. Some things to think about. Um, absolutely vital to be very clear on the objectives and the wishes, particularly for generation one. So that would be typically uh, the mother or the father who, who may well have been the originator of the family wealth. It's things to think about. We've got examples of clients who want their wealth to flow entirely dynastically. So generation to generation in perpetuity to support the family through every generation that follows. We have some clients that um, want to look at more charitable causes. In fact, we have one client at the moment who will be, and we're making arrangements with him to give away the entirety of the wealth uh, upon his passing at a charity. And we're, but we are making plans now during his lifetime, engaging his family to discuss that. Some clients we see having a mixture of both, uh, looking after the family, but also looking after the things that are important to them from a charitable point of view. The other key thing on the objectives is, do you want this structure, this plan to be a unifying force so that the whole family get bound in and operate within it? Or do you want to be dividing the wealth up? And then perhaps if you've got three children, perhaps you you divide it a third, a third, a third, if, 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 if either your laws or your religious um, beliefs allow you to do that and then each family they can go its own way so so that's that's the first thing i'd say the, the second thing really is talk talk about the issues talk about the objectives 
it's really, really important that we've seen the most successful wealth planning uh, structures have been put in place when the the, the mother or father, sort of the patriarch, matriarch, generation one, as we call them, mm-hmm. uh, have sat down with their children, sometimes depending on the ages, their grandchildren, so generations two and three, talk about the issues and the objectives as generation see them, generation one see them, sorry, but really importantly, listen to and try to understand what's important for generations two and three, because it, it won't be the same. It's really important that generation one listen. So you need to have a shared objective, really, within the family. Uh, it's also important to do a gap analysis, and it has to be honest. That can be tough for families. It's, it's easy, I think, for a family to look for gaps in perhaps their advisor base. If perhaps they've got an asset located in a jurisdiction, they don't have a tax advisor there. Perhaps they look at their wealth plan and there's a missing asset class or asset class they're underrepresented in. That's quite easy to to identify and obviously fix. But being honest about the gap analysis within the family is a bit tougher. Again, needs, needs conversation. What I'm talking about here is you have within a family, particularly look at generation two, then generation three, as, as life goes on, the generations get bigger and bigger, more and more people in the family. Some will um, come out of the mould of the matriarch and patriarch. Some won't. Some will be interested in perhaps the, the family business. Some won't. Some will be perhaps more able to engage in the family business or the wealth plan. Some won't. Some may not be interested. Um, so be honest about that. There's no shame in it. Just be honest and be frank. And then at least you can plan to accommodate everyone within a structure. Mm-hmm. Then it's thinking about the structure itself. Can I just take a step back? And what happens, and before we go on to the structure itself, what happens if we don't get some of these things right? What happens if we don't get the objectives right and, and we don't talk? So the so, so the risks the risks really are big risk number one. Uh, just ignoring the issue altogether. That's never a solution. Um, we have seen it. We have seen it. No one likes to think about their mortality. Generation one don't. And actually, generation two very often don't want to think about mum and dad not being around. So it's a really tough conversation to start. Um, once you've started it, you've absolutely got to be prepared to see it through. But it's, in our experience, much, much better to start the conversation rather than ignore it. Uh, yeah, an unstructured plan or thoughts and wishes of the mother or father that have not been communicated does cause problems. Um, not addressing the challenges and the gaps. Most families have challenges. Most families will have gaps as I've described them previously. So you don't be afraid to address them. If you don't address them and you ignore them, you may have a, you may have a succession plan or a wealth plan, but if you ignore the proverbial elephant in the room, it will just become a, a bigger problem down the line. Um, yeah, planning is good. But, but you know, one's got to be realistic about the plan. Um, yeah, plans do need revisiting and refreshing from time to time. They shouldn't be static. It's your best. It's your best guess of how you want your wealth to be managed for your family circumstances at the point in time you make the plan. But but particularly, if you're thinking about generation two and generation three come along. So the grandchildren, when they come along, life will change again. And the object. So revisit the plan. Absolutely. Uh, drifting away from the plan to big risk. Yeah, as I said, you know, nothing static in life. So revisit, but consciously revisit. Don't allow yourself to drift. Don't allow the last person you've spoken to to influence something and take you away from the plan unless you have consciously chosen to do that. Probably, and I would always recommend in consultation with Generation 2. The other the other big risk, um, and it's a tough one when you speak to the first generation, so mum and dad, is if they're looking at a dynastic structure, something that passes wealth generation to generation and generation, 
it's it's really difficult concept but it's true and we see it all the time particularly when generation three come on as each generation comes about it, it is literally one step removed from um, generation one so generation two likely to be similar in terms of thoughts and objectives not always um, for their their parents generation three will probably remember their grandparents but probably not in a financial sense generation four may not have even met generation one um, so you have to accept as generation one that you can't control too much and actually it's really risky if you try and put in something that's so rigid and prescriptive you're only baking in problems further down the line because you don't know you don't know what generation three will look like you don't know how many people will be in generation three where they'll live generation four you have no idea you can't even begin to guess mm -hmm. so you've got it's to, interesting to, what's to, an example sorry nick to interrupt but what's an example of that what would be something that's too rigid yeah i, I think the, 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 the example the examples we've seen in the past it's a difficult balance because on the one hand you've got to be careful not to put too much flexibility of just oh whatever because that may not mm -hmm. suit the family or the objectives but you know generally speaking we find that the, the, the better plans tend to set out generation one. Here's what here's what's important to me. Here's what my sort of you know, my what life's taught me or my um, my rules rules of life that have served me well. But they need to understand that that may not be what generation two or generation three want want or be important. So the key is to make sure that you have the ability to pass the baton, if you like, to pass the influence of the structure down when it's right to generation two and generation three. If you just write, and we've seen it, so a letter of wishes, for example, in a traditional private client trust structure, it's it's almost essential to have a letter of wishes because that's what really allows the trustees to, to follow the set law, which would be generation one's wishes. We've seen some letters of wishes that are, I mean, you know, literally 10 pages long, and they are so prescriptive. It's if this happens, this can happen. You can't do this. You must do that. All done with the best intentions at the time, um, based on the circumstances at the time, whether that be the, the family wealth, the family dynamics, where the assets are located, tax situation, but life changes. And if it, it, it's so prescriptive that you actually can't cater for things that aren't written in the letter of wishes. Um, and that's really difficult. And, but, and professional trustees, you need to, a letter of wishes is very persuasive um, and is a really useful document for trustees to have a look at. But you have, there, there are limits and certainly you, know, you, you must be very careful not to be constrained, but basically trying to do too much and, and not recognising that Generation 4, it's a terrible thing to think about, especially if you're, if you're the individual that have created the family wealth. But Generation 4 will never know you. You may be a picture, you may be a name. That's mm. all you'll be. Going back to um, structures and, and yeah. just to finish your thought, you, um, what other what structures would one put in place um, sort of specifically? Yes, I mean, there are a variety, Douglas. And <clears throat> the the good news for families these days is there are a variety. Um, they've been around for a long time. They've been tested. Um, you know, no one wants to end up in court, but that is the ultimate test of some structures and some laws. They've been tested uh, and found to be very appropriate and resilient in courts of law. Uh, they've been much copied. So you do have a choice of location that you might want to use these structures in and they'll broadly be the same. So that's really helpful. So there's a good toolkit to look at that's robust, it's well tested. Um, again, it depends on the family objectives. You might want one structure. So a traditional structure would be a trust, um, mm. perhaps with uh, holding companies underneath for investments. And that's where your tax structure might come in, perhaps in the how you own each asset under the trust. Um, again, it depends on your objectives. You might want to have, we've, we have examples of uh, one trust that looks after the entire family wealth. 
we have examples of uh, generation one who have decided to actually create we've got one example uh, we've got five siblings and charity so we've actually the, the generation one created just before his death five structures one for each family line and one for charity divided the wealth equally and then so the, the, the money is ring fenced within an appropriate structure but it gives flexibility for each each family line and ultimately it keeps the funding going for the trust there are other other tools you can use foundations are very popular um, particularly in um, if you look at the Middle East, for example, or Asia, where clients uh, aren't so familiar with the trust concept of giving your assets away to someone to look after for you and your family. That is a tough concept to get your head around. Mm-hmm. It's more accepted, I think, in the Western world. Um, so you can use a foundation. You can put a few more checks and balances in there. You need to be careful about um, tax. Uh, private trust companies. So you've got a trust arrangement, perhaps the trustee is a private trust company and and that private trust company, the directors could be a blend of professional trustees like ourselves, plus certain family members or trusted advisors. We see that Mm. uh, increasingly as well. Gives the the family some comfort that there's someone uh, overseeing the professional trustees work. We've seen family limited partnerships, family offices, uh, whether they be single or multi-family offices, or no structure at all. That can be be okay too. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I think going into a wealth plan um, yeah, one must be very careful to ensure that you keep an open mind right till the end and your advisors do so too because sometimes it may be that actually none of these things are appropriate for that particular family. Sometimes powers of attorney can work whether they be what's now referred to as living powers of attorney or powers of attorney over specific assets um, you know, down the line. It's so interesting and you bring up the sort of distinction between the Asian market, Middle East market and, and, and maybe the Western market but uh, is if you have a choice, are there certain jurisdictions under which these kind of structures work better? And maybe the answer, sort of opposite end of that question, you know, where which jurisdictions do they not work well in? I think the the, the fundamental question, if you're putting your well, is do you need to put a structure in place first of all? If you do, does it need to be you know, offshore in the traditional offshore to the International Financial Centre? description or could it be onshore so closer to home for me yeah, this is you're, you're talking about very often a lifetime's work of creating wealth um this now that's now being passed down to generation two generation three you want to be very very happy that whatever you choose the structure and the location and the trustee if that's the case are excellent are in a regulated environment a well-respected environment an environment where the rule of law works where the courts are mature, robust. So, so you would typically, so it's not so much about a structure not working in a location, because most of these structures can be done in lots of international financial centres, is whether you think the international financial, financial centre um, gives you comfort. Do you feel it's, it's robust, has the right safeguards in place? So it, the world is full of international financial centres. Some are more mature than others. Some have been around longer, some are bigger. So look at sort of close to home in the crown dependencies with jersey Guernsey, and the isle of man uh, they're all very well respected jurisdictions they each have the laws to enable them to create several structures and the caribbean you have sort of cayman bermuda have been around for a long long time as has the bvi singapore is growing singapore as, as a country i think is very well respected seems very politically stable um, as, a, as the rule of law operating so singapore for the asian market is becoming quite popular because it's it's not so much about 
the structure it's about the comfort level of the location you've got your structure in plus where you are I mean, if you're an asian client or a middle eastern client then perhaps you want your structure in singapore or in, in dubai and in, in the difc for example uh, has some great regulation great laws very much modeled on the english model you might be able to do the structure onshore you know london is still a very popular in the uk is very, still very popular for running these structures so it will be very specific it will be very very specific to the clients but i would say the client base and probably the, the demographic that I, I, I guess your podcast will appeal to probably will be much better aligned to a very traditional, very stable, uh, long-term, well-respected jurisdiction. That's the key. And moving away from the structure, how have the, the demands um, of the younger generation that sort of fed into the, the sort of investment approaches? I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast about the rise of ESG and the rise of impact investing. Yeah. Are you getting a sort of push effect from the, the younger generation, the next generation, who are sort of taking more interest in, in what what these um, structures are investing in and, you know, putting more pressure perhaps on the trustees themselves? Absolutely. Um, it, it's, not, it's not universal. There is certainly our experience when we engage with Generation 2 and more increasingly Generation 3. So for us, Generation 3 in our world now would be, you know, perhaps you know, there'll be the grandchildren, uh, they're, they're extremely well-educated, very knowledgeable, they're well-traveled, they're well-connected, whether that be through the family connections or connections they forge themselves, very often when they're the university degrees. Yeah, these will be people who are maximum, you know, 20 to 30, 35. So they've got all the, um, the enthusiasm and the risk-taking appetite you have when you're, you know, when you, when you're younger, but they, they're much um, closer to understanding what they really want out of life and the assets. So they think a lot about absolutely growing the assets, but they think about enjoying the assets. Now, enjoyment doesn't necessarily mean racing around in a fast car. It means enjoying either enjoying seeing them deployed in charitable purposes, seeing the assets being deployed for ESG. Absolutely. We see we see a lot of that and a lot of our investment mandates are tilting towards ESG where it makes investment sense. So I guess it's capitalism with a conscience, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But they're also looking at enjoying the, the wealth in terms of investing in their own ideas, their own ventures. So a lot more entrepreneurial, which is really interesting. So the the mind oh, this is going to sound like a sweeping gen, generalization, but the the mindset that perhaps Generation One were brought up in of live off your income and don't spend your capital, I think is being tested. Mm. I think I think that's fine. I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What we are seeing though is people still respect the fact that there is wealth there, and I think in today's Generation Two and Generation Three, of course, they are starting from a position of wealth where perhaps mm. Generation One was not. So mm. they've already got a, they've already got a kickstart, and they're now thinking about. How do they take on this mantle? Because it is an, it's an emotional and a, and a moral burden and obligation to take on wealth that someone else has made and passed down to you. So they are very conscious about doing something with it, making it making it work. So mm-hmm. generation four has some wealth, but making it matter. And whether that means making it matter for the family or for the environment or for, and we have examples of clients that have sponsored schools in Africa, for example, where that's not an investment, that's, I suppose, it's charitable, but where they make sure those school children every single lunchtime get a peanut butter and jam sandwich. Mm-hmm. And for some of those children, that's the main meal of the day. Um, mm-hmm. We have other people, we have some generation two and three who want to be actively involved in the wealth, so they want to sit with us when we talk to our wealth managers. Yeah, they really want to test us and challenge us on the investment objectives versus the family objectives, objectives to make sure they're compatible. We have others who just want to do whatever interests them in life and just let someone else manage the wealth to make sure it's there for them when they need it. Mm. it when new clients come to you and perhaps 
uh, you know, they've they've generated. You know, maybe it's come, um, the wealth has been generated through a business sale. What advice do you give them early on? And um, what sort of what are the the sort of tools that you the sort of more emotional tools that you you try and um, try and uh, equip them with? The that's a absolutely fascinating question because we spend so much of our time working on technical um, pieces. So whether that's the technical structure, the legal structure that we are running or, or helping to set up, or the technical structure around investments, so perhaps an investment policy statement, beauty parades, selecting managers, monitoring, et cetera, or the tax technical piece of making sure we get the reporting right, et cetera. Um, the bit I think that is probably the the an undervalued skill of a, of a good trustee or an advisor is is the, that emotional counselling and having a chat and being, being sufficiently distanced and independent from the family that you can ask the questions that perhaps family members can't ask of themselves. And you can just very gently mm. just challenge it. Have you thought about that? Do you actually think that Miss um, X or Mr. Y really want that? Do you think I think they might want something different? So a lot of it is actually spending just enough time talking and just allowing your clients to talk to you, having a chat, if they'll allow you to, to generation two, generation three, and perhaps some old family friends and advisors, just to get a sense. The key thing to do is not to rush. It can be if someone spent their lifetime working on a particular project, particular business, um, and, and that's been their generation their wealth. Very often, actually, the wealth generation wasn't what they started it for. They started it for because they really enjoyed it, had a passion for it, or they had a great idea, or they just found it really exciting. And the wealth, not would say it's quite accidental, but sometimes it does come as a bit of a shock, clients. And it can be very overwhelming, it can be super overwhelming because they're, they're, they're not trained for that. If they spent their life building something, or manufacturing something, or researching something, or they've not been coached or trained how to deal with sometimes some very substantial wealth. Uh, there'll be no shortage of advisors who will try and help them. Um, some sometimes helpful, sometimes not. So I think take your time. I would absolutely say so when we speak to clients who are coming uh, coming into great wealth, it's quite good if we can speak to them before that event's happened because there may be some things we can put in place beforehand, just perhaps to particularly on the tax, perhaps mitigate some of the tax so there's more wealth than to structure. But the actual structuring thinking about the family wealth for generation one's lifetime and ultimately succession. Take your time. Don't rush. Choose your advisors well, not necessarily on their technical expertise, or well, that's important, but you should take that as a given. It's actually, do they understand me? Are they the right age? Are they the right age for me? Or perhaps more importantly, are they, are they the right age for generation two? Do they understand? Are they in that demographic? Do they understand what drives generation two? Because that's you know, very often people don't and they make the wrong decisions. So be flexible. Whatever you do in terms of structuring, don't make it too rigid. Don't make it inflexible. Don't tie yourself up for years in something that you might live to regret. So try and keep flexibility. Good news is tools in the toolkit these days allow flexibility. Uh, there's so much more information available in terms of types of investment. Uh, it's much easier now to move investments around. So don't rush, but spend the time thinking about it and don't be afraid to say, actually, I don't really understand how investment markets work. We have we have clients, some of them self-made, some of them are sort of generation two, I guess, inherited, who you can see when you when you sit in investment manager meetings, they're uncomfortable. They're not uncomfortable because they're not capable people. They are intelligent people. They're very skilled. They've made a lot of money. They're just it's not the environment they're used to. But that's okay too. So it's a case of just saying, look, don't worry. If you, if you're not comfortable with that, if there's an element of this you don't understand, that's fine. We'll 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 help you. We'll guide you. We'll find someone who can take you through. Or just take your time. Just come and sit in on investment manager meetings every quarter, and you'll find it won't be one quarter. Maybe it's a year. Maybe it's two years. But you'll become more comfortable. And then when you're more comfortable, engage more. 
but in the meantime, yeah. let your advisors ask the questions. So it, it is quite, um, I think people assume very often, Generation One, that if you've made your money doing something, you must be able to do anything. And then you, you sit on a pile of cash or whatever it is, and, and you, you instantly know what to do. That's just not the way the world works. You do need good advisors with you. You need to take your time and be honest with yourself and the things you do know and the things you don't. As you touched on, the listenership of this podcast is, is sort of the, the younger audience. Now, what advice would you give to to, to them uh, who perhaps are looking to build a career you know, as advisors? What do, and maybe the way to answer it is, you know, what are you looking for when you're hiring and um, your you know, junior uh, graduates and, and junior associates, what, what sort of skill sets are you looking for? I think just an all-round education is good. Um, it doesn't have to be particularly technical. It doesn't have to be particular. I mean, we do get a lot of science graduates come into this industry. Uh, we get a lot of English language graduates, for example, come in this industry. So there is no particular university degree or A-levels or the equivalent baccalaureate, et cetera, that one needs. It needs to be, I certainly, I would suggest you, you would be better to have gone through a secondary school education uh, as a minimum, ideally tertiary, so a university degree of some some description. I think coming in, yeah, the early years, like like anyone, it's, it's, it's like having an apprenticeship. So there's a lot of technical knowledge to gain. Very often we, we encourage all of our staff to go through a professional qualification, whether that be a a chartered secretary or a, a, an accountancy qualification, sometimes it's a tax certification. That's really helpful. Um, a lot of it is about being in a structure will allow you to grow. So make sure that when you are looking at, if it is this sort of career, is it interesting to you, first of all? Because yeah, if it's not interesting, then I suggest you know, don't do it. Look at your employer and say, well, are they, could they give me what I might need? So if you're someone who wants to travel internationally and work in different locations, you're going to look at an organization that has offices globally rather than small. Do you, do you like the idea of being in a big organization or perhaps something a bit more personal, perhaps a local firm that has 20 or 30 people? These are all important. In terms of getting your clients, I think it's a case of being respectful to the clients because these people are, you know, they are important obviously for the business because that's what brings in the income. But they are people that are used to being surrounded by very often the best advisors because of their, their wealth. So be respectful for that, but listen and learn all the time. Listen and learn and be prepared to ask questions, perhaps not in front of the client to begin with, but with the your, your next level, perhaps your manager or even your director. Um, always stick your hand up and volunteer. If you see something you quite like to have a, have uh, have a go at, uh, even if it's not something that's within your day-to-day job, stick your hand up. Uh, because we do get a lot of the, it is a very um, very structured career or can be a very structured career path. So you have you know, a smaller number of directors at the top, then you have a larger number of managers and a larger number of administrators as well. So some people get comfortable at a certain level, some people aspire and they're ambitious and they want to go all the way. So if you are more on that, if you're more inclined to be ambitious, then stick your hand up and volunteer. Go to, I'd like to go and work at that office. Actually, there's no show if you come into a private client environment, sometimes perhaps private clients aren't your thing. Uh, private clients, as you've alluded to, Douglas, are a very, a very emotional uh, career path for people. You do get invested uh, in, in families and their wealth and their issues. That's part of the job. And that can be fantastically rewarding can be emotionally very draining. Some people, they might like to cut and thrust a transactional work. So having a grounding in private client doesn't stop you. In fact, we have one of our most successful uh, private equity fund directors started life in uh, our private client business. And we looked at it and spoke to that individual as their career developed and said, I think, why don't you try this? Something a bit different. Um, so it, 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 it is that the whole industry is so diverse 
on on every level that actually if you've got an interest it's worth a go because you'll probably find there is something in there that you'll find interesting Nick Hawley thank you for joining me thank you Douglas it's been a pleasure Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Nick Corley. If you want any more information about Accorian, then do go to their website at accorian.com. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, why not like it and subscribe to it and tell your friends. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.